Hello, everybody. Welcome to the second interview of We Talk About Dead People's new interview style of show. It was a lot of fun. We actually recorded it quite a while ago, but I was holding back just because. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. We were talking to Joshua from the Our Foundations podcast. Of course, you'll hear him introduced in the actual show, and I won't be long here, but... Uh, I just wanted to say hello and welcome. If you're a new listener, this is not our typical style. We typically do narrative, comedy, and history telling, but recently we've been trying to do more interviews with other podcasters and other minds out there who are testing reality with their with their thoughts. Uh, this is a pretty deep chat, and uh, yeah, there's really not much to say. We get to talking about a comparison between what we're seeing in the modern world and uh, the uh, Protestant Reformation, which was a comparison that I kind of was picking up on sometime, I would say, last year to a couple years ago. We get into the uh, relationship between communications technology and, and uh, theology and the state of belief that uh, essentially and how, how states of belief shape and are shaped by uh, the uh, whatever's going on in that era. Now that isn't, you know, the most graceful way I could have said that, so I'll just, uh, I'll let it be and let the interview f speak for itself from here on out. So, all that being said, here we go! Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. thank you. Oh, we, we all get a little notification. Nice. Can't miss that. Yeah, and then I'm going to go... By continuing, you are consenting to be... I didn't know I had to sign a contract. Jeez. <laughs> you just did. I might have to leave the state and disappear for a while. Well, without the state, you've got to have contracts to keep things organized, you know? <laughs> yes. All right, and I'm hitting record on my Audacity track. I think we're good. All right, is everybody rolling on the backups? Got it. Yep. Okay, roger that. All right, I'll record a, a more specific intro later to tell people what you know what's going to go on in this talk because I won't know till it's over. Um, but in the meantime, how are we doing today, gentlemen? Doing good. <laughs> yeah, doing good. George, how are you doing? It's a beautiful day. We got some much needed rain here finally, which is very very good for the crops. And so yeah, can't complain. Yeah, that's excellent. You know, we've we've been getting lots of like uh, showers and and uh, gray, cloudy days, but no real like storms. I want a really good storm one of these days soon. But you know, being being where we live, uh, we don't get many of those. It's not exactly Texas. We had a, we had a nice one yesterday, so much so that the uh, the people I was on Discord with could actually hear the thunder in the background. Oh wow! wow. <laughs> yeah, we've that's... had some storms nearby us with downpours. But we've been skipped the past like three times in the past two weeks. And so our gardens, like just the other day, it was a huge storm. And then in our garden, you look under the pepper plants and it's still dry. And so it's pretty annoying. That's kind of the state we're in. We're waiting for more rain. Mm, well, waiting for that storm to finally roll in and save us all, right? <laughs> uh, yes, I'm sure you have words to say about such things, which... <laughs> <laughs> which is a great a great segue if i do say so myself uh i would like to introduce everybody to joshua from the our foundations podcast uh and you can hear them all they're applauding you right now from their various places around the world to thank say you, welcome welcome to we talk about dead people joshua and i would like to just 
begin by letting you share just what you're all about, because I've listened to your show and I find it fascinating. Um, but it turns out that I like a lot of weird stuff, as we learned from our last interview. Um, so instead of me trying to describe what it is that you do, I'd like you to take it away and do it for me. I can handle that. So awesome. my show is Our Foundations, and the goal of it is to really assess and understand society. I think that's probably the basic core but the way just I've a, done just that. a small, small scale, small <laughs> scope question. Yeah, minor you know, things. Can, it's pretty basic. You can should be able to knock that out in 15 minutes. Never look back. <laughs> no, no problem at all. So I, I try to break it down, though, you know, just in case someone needs a little more. But the the way that I've broken that down is I do seasons. And so I did a full season, the first season on the systems of our society, uh, mainly focused on government, money and education kind of the three most important systems we have, kind of where those started, did a few on corruption and conspiracy in the middle. So you'd probably be interested in that as well. Um, George, maybe not so much. And then <laughs> the, the end of season one, I got into some alternative movements like agorism and homeschooling and cryptocurrencies and all kinds of stuff. And so then after that season two, I looked at a historical parallel well, and that was the time period of the Reformation and drew out a lot of stuff uh, related to like technological change, theology compared to modern day politics, power shifts going on among the institutions then and today. So that was really interesting. And then in between season two and three, where I am now, I've really dug into this idea of historical patterns and historical cycles, and not only trying to understand where we are today, but understand where we're going and season three is another historical pattern, a historical parallel with the early church and looking at how they were this movement, an alternative movement that went against the mainstream, but that uh, really was in opposition to both the state and the culture, but was much more successful. As Rome fell, Christianity is kind of what held things together after that and saved a lot of the knowledge and brought us into the Middle Ages and that kind of thing. So that's that's really what I'm doing. I guess it's a, it's a broad scope, but like you say, you know, this topic of understanding all of society, you know, you got to hit it from a few angles. Well, I'll just I'll just share with uh, with George and the listeners the one thing I said. I asked you in the pre-show call. I said, "So, what are you working on now?" And you said something like uh, a framework for the natural order. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, okay." So you know, you've got a you've got a lot of ambition. And I think one thing that I would like to get before we start really cracking down into the into the touchy topics, because I really do want to talk about the Reformation and get both of your perspectives on it, because obviously we all will have different perspectives on what just what the hell went on there, honestly. Um, but, uh, you know, tell us a little bit of your story, like how you arrived where you are. I mean, surely there's some lines in your past that you could draw directly to starting our foundations and doing this kind of research and ending up in these sometimes strange, but, you know, I would say emerging realms of thought. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the main place it started, I guess, at a dual starting point where on one hand, I grew up in a Christian home, went to church, that kind of thing, but I wasn't really ever that involved. And um, I would say about maybe 10 years ago or so, roughly, I really started to get involved personally and try to understand more about the Bible, what it teaches, theology, that kind of stuff. So that's that's one side of things, and that'll be a strand that kind of weaves its way through. But on the other side, I started getting involved in investing, 
And so I had a brokerage account and I was getting into stocks and I thought that was really interesting and fun and I was going to get rich and it was going to be really cool. And so I realized that I had some shortcomings and I didn't really understand things like economics and politics and current events and really much of anything. And so as I understood that, I decided I should educate myself in those areas. So around the same time, I took a job where I could have earbuds in all day long and listen Mm. to about six to eight hours of content every single day. And so I really filled that and stuffed that with podcasts and audiobooks and lectures and all kinds of stuff. And so uh, starting from investing, I then got into like current events and what's going on in the world. And I decided I had to learn more about economics. And that led me down this rabbit hole to Austrian economics, which led me down a rabbit hole to libertarianism and political philosophy. And that led me to things like anarchism and agorism and all of these isms. And so I really dug into political philosophy on one side. But the other thing I was starting to understand is that Uh, technology and history are things that uh, really come into play when we're talking about how companies are doing. Basically, this is still related to investing slightly, but now I'm starting to get into my, my interests a little more. And I found that blockchain technology was this emerging thing that was coming out. And this was earlier on before we had the first major bull run. And I guess that was 2016, 2017, around there. And uh, started getting involved with that because uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, they incorporate like a political philosophy. There has to be a way of running these things and there's not a centralized uh, corporation or state behind it. So there has to be some sort of political mechanism for making decisions and that kind of stuff. And then it also had to do with economics. There were monetary systems that were coded into each one. And uh, obviously it's technology and all of these things really came together in cryptocurrencies. And so I got really interested in that. It's also related to investing. And so um, dug into that as well. And at the same time, I uh, had kids and my kids were babies, but my wife and I decided we wanted to homeschool them. And I work uh, roughly in the education system locally. So I am in the schools a decent bit. And um, I am not a huge fan of putting my kids in those schools. (laughs) And so uh, we decided to go an alternative route. My wife was homeschooled and there's a big homeschooling community, many communities in our local city. So it's something that fit really well. And I realized that I needed to educate myself in homeschooling. And so dug into education, the education system, learning methods, all kinds of stuff. And um, as I was doing this, I was also getting exposed to history. And I never really dug into history outside of, you know, some random high school classes that I didn't remember. And so when I started hearing about how, uh, for example, a lot of the modern wars were coming into being and that there was all this like behind the scenes politics and propaganda and lies and true conspiracies and corruption, these kinds of things, it was really interesting to me. And so I started digging into that. And somewhere on this path, when I was a few years in, I realized that I was having to draw from so many different sources. I'd have to find a podcast or an audiobook on the education system, but I'd have to find one on education methods and one on uh, teaching in a classroom and one on kind of the corruptions of the education system throughout history and just all of these different things. And I'd do that for every subject. And I really couldn't find anything that brought all of that stuff together. And so I realized one day that 
if I can't find it and it doesn't exist as far as I know, then maybe I should do it. And I'd always been interested in producing content and writing and that kind of stuff. So uh, that kind of led me down a path of starting a podcast. And that was season one of my show was looking at all of these different things, the education system, the economic system, the political system, how these things mesh together, how they've evolved uh, up to where we are today, where they're headed, all of that stuff. And I kind of tried to incorporate all those things together and make the different connections and lay it out in a way where someone without really any prior knowledge or experience could understand it, but not just stay at that basic level, bring someone from a basic level all the way to some advanced stuff and stuff that gets a lot deeper that a lot of people might not have been exposed to before. And so that was kind of my genesis in starting the podcast. And I mentioned theology, that kind of ties in because I was also interested in philosophy. So I dug into Greek philosophy and other philosophies and uh, and theology as well. And so now, uh, unexpectedly in the last season, or I guess in between season two and three of my show, I did a few interviews where spirituality came up and theology and these kinds of things. And my show is not religious at all. But as those things came up, then they came up and we had to address them. And so um, that started to tie itself in, especially in this season, because I'm using this historical uh, pattern and parallel of the early church. Uh, season two was the Reformation, and obviously there's some theology that comes into play there and why they acted the way that they did, the different institutions and players and such. But with the early church, I'm really digging into their philosophy and their theology and how that related to how they would have viewed the state and how they would have viewed the culture and morality and all these kinds of things. So that's been pretty interesting. I think I think that's a good story for how I got here. <laughs> well, it's 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 interesting to me because when you see how all of those things begin to tie together, all those various different topics, you know, from history to economics to technology, and you start to draw those connections, you start to see how, well, these things are not, they don't exist in vacuums, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, when I started really digging into history, I was just looking at stories from the past. And I was, uh, I, w I also have a background in communications. And so I studied all the different, um, all the different disruptions in communications technology, but I never like considered exact, like for some reason, my brain didn't go, ah, yes, World War One, like, ha like the only reason they could do half the stuff they did was because of the communications technology of the time that was evolving out of the stuff that existed in like, I don't know, the Napoleonic era and the Revolutionary War in America and all of these new tech, all of these new technologies that came out. Um, and how those things shifted into the actual, you know, war front. Um, but yeah, I think that's part of why I like your show so much. And I've been sort of almost binging it is because you do draw those connections. And I think as far as the modern education system goes, it's just like almost everything else out there in that system that we call uh, modern society. Everything is kept in its own little box and they can't be related in any way. And we, we don't want to talk about it. But, you know, George and I were both homeschooled, so... Huh. We have a little bias there, but uh, George, you're just sitting there stroking that massive beard of yours. <laughs> and I have to wonder, do you have any thoughts right out of the gate yet? Well, I mean, that that last bit that you said, uh, Josh, about sort of what uh, what's the interaction between these different factions in society, it made me think of a quote, which I'm sure you're 
familiar with, which if memory serves, which it probably doesn't, is from uh, Tertullian, which is what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? Sort of what is that relationship between spirituality and education or society more broadly? And yeah, I wondered if you, do you look at when you're doing this stuff with the early church and whatnot, do you look much at the church fathers or do you focus on New Testament stuff? So a little bit of both. I really like going back to the earliest church fathers. So to me, like the first, say, 100 years or so. Oh, yeah. Anti-Nicene fathers, baby. Yes, yes. (laughs) So go to the original. Go as close to the source as possible. So I try to do that with the early church, and I do the same with the scriptures as a whole. And so I go back to, like, Hebrew culture and how they would have understood things and go back to the ancient scribes and um, their commentaries and that kind of stuff. So trying to go back as far back to the source as possible, I think gets you the least corrupted interpretations. And so that's kind of my goal is go to the source. Same with when I got into like corruption and conspiracy, I actually went into source documentation of government investigations and saw that you know, hey, these things are actually real. Our own government investigated it and had all these reports. And so if I can go back to that source documentation, I feel like I can get at least much closer to the truth. Well, I think that's uh, obviously it's important to do that kind of thing. And I, I there was uh, one little bit you said in there. It's, it's it's conspiracy. And we had a phase with conspiracy. I know I had a phase with conspiracy because the re- the thing is, like, at a certain point in my life, I realized, like, well, what if these people were working together? Is that possible? And then I looked into it. And I'm like, not only is it possible, it that's literally how everything works. So one of the topics that you actually covered recently was, what was I think it was you, you covered conspiracy as a natural phenomenon. Was that right? Something like that. Yeah. Conspiracy or coincidence and yeah. kind of how that plays out in modern times. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was you because I was I was listening to, I, I I won't lie, I've fallen asleep to a couple of them. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Well, it's people tell me that on my show, and I'm like, great. I don't know how you do it with all the yelling and swearing and beeping, but I, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it is interesting when you begin to see that interconnectedness between all of these different all of these different realms. Uh, you do have to go into like, well, how does this tie in theologically? You know, what's the what's this what was the scriptural background for this kind of move within the church? And one of the things that I've really enjoyed about your show uh, is that comparison between the Reformation and the modern times. And at the risk of pissing some people off, which is just going to happen. Um, one of your recent interviews was with this with uh, I think it was Vin. Was it Vin? Vin Armani. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> And he was talking about, it was so funny. It sounded, the first time I listened to it, you guys sounded so similar. I thought it was just you talking to yourself. <laughs> but uh, the, the funny, th- the interesting thing about that is the discussion of the emergence of a new, almost secular church. Would you be willing to sort of break down your thoughts on this modern Reformation era we might be entering ourselves? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I think there's two ways of approaching that. You have kind of a materialistic way and a mystical way. So uh, if you looked at season two of my podcast and that um, parallel with the Reformation that you mentioned earlier, one of the aspects that I drew out of that was that in the time period of the Reformation, 
theology filtered everything, your entire life, whether it was the education you received, where you received your education, um, how you got your job, where you devoted your money, who you went to if you had a problem, what the welfare system was, it was the church. And so theology kind of filtered everything in that time period. And the modern parallel to that is politics filters everything we do today, whether that be education, what you learn, where you learn, where you put your money, how we handle with how, how we handle the welfare system, all of these kinds of things. It's all filtered through politics. And so politics is the old uh, theology. And so from a more materialistic perspective, you could say that the modern view of the modern nation state is something that came out of the Reformation, because prior to the Reformation, you didn't have nation states the way we view them today. They didn't really exist. And you had mostly monarchies and small fiefdoms and things were organized very differently. And the way that people handled society was very different. And then after the Reformation, after the Thirty Years' War, you started to see the development and the growth of these larger conglomerates, which became the nation states that we know of today. Now, some of them prototypes were in existence prior, and you know, there's all kinds of exceptions and caveats. But in general, um, that was kind of what shifted the majority of the Western world to this new model of having a nation state. And shift that forward to modern times, the way we view the nation state is the way pe people in that previous period of the Reformation viewed the church. So the church was the governing authority and institution. They were the ones that decreed what things should be done and what things shouldn't be done. If a king went against the church prior to the Reformation, it usually didn't go very well for that king. And the church had a lot of influence and they could push monarchs even and lords. And although they weren't necessarily ruling outright, the church did have a lot of influence on not only the rulers, but on the common people. The local parish would have a lot of influence over a local town. And so uh, move that ahead again to the modern times and the nation state plays the same role. Role The state is what tells us what to do, what not to do, and how we structure our lives. The state is who we go to, to again, be educated or to take advantage of the welfare system, um, not necessarily in a negative way, but sometimes in a negative way, um, but to receive uh, things when we are in need. And the state plays this role of this entity that we can't really see or define. It doesn't really exist. It's something that's, that's above and beyond a human, a mere human. The state isn't just a mere human. It's something that's bigger. It's a um, something that is out for the common good and for the good of all people under it. And it has this benevolence and it has this um, overarching knowledge that you know we mere mortals don't have. And so when you start to look at that aspect of how we view the state, and especially compared to how people in previous times viewed the church, and then also look at that parallel between how theology was so important then and structured everything and politics does now, theology relates to the church, politics relates to the state. And um, we see that statism, the, uh, uh, yeah, I guess I'll go ahead and say the worship of the state. Um, that is a thing. And it's not a thing that most people really consciously approach from that perspective. Most people wouldn't say, oh, yes, I worship the state. The state is my God. You know, you're not going to hear that out of really anybody unless they're, you know, some weird cult. But if you look at the actual actions of people and how they treat the state 
and compare that to a religion, it makes a lot of sense. They are part of something bigger than themselves. There is this institution with these old texts and documents that uh, set forth their morality, what is good, what is bad, what people should do and shouldn't do. There is this structure to how you organize society that is handed down to you by these uh, founding documents and these you know, patriarchs of the past that um, have these mythologies that surround them. And it's very similar to the biblical scriptures. And um, we see that people look to the state to take care of their needs. And if there is a problem in society, oh, well, the state should handle that. The state will take care of things. The state will protect us. Um, just like you would say, you know, God will take care of my needs. God will protect me. God is the one I always turn to. Um, the state is their God. And you could even get into kind of just the basic rituals of, you know, singing songs about the glory of the state. Um, that kind of similar to singing songs about the glory of God or uh, pledging your allegiance to the state and saying that you, know, you submit yourself to this higher powerful entity. And uh, these concepts of just all of these different things of how people treat and interact with the state, they don't do it consciously, but it is filling this religious role in people's lives. That's how it's viewed. And so that's one aspect of secular religion, I would say, where the state is their god, in a sense, it fills that role at least. And uh, the other aspect, you mentioned the Van Armani interview, he talks a lot about us shifting into what he says is an age of magic, and it's kind of catchy, but uh, more of this aspect of getting more ideational or spiritual or mystical, um, you can probably see this in your lives where uh, you probably hear a lot more people that say, oh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. That's a very common phrase that people use uh, much more than they had before. It uh, was the case in America, at least, that Christianity was a very dominant religion. And now it is getting more the case that people are shifting towards being spiritual, but not being religious. And we're entering into some sort of uh, more of a focus on a spiritual age or an ideational age versus a materialistic age or a sensate age. And so with this shift, there's also a shift in secular religion. So things are shifting from statism to wokeism. And uh, yeah, I guess that's, I guess, a little controversial too, because- Of course, yes, yeah, of course it is. Those who are woke are definitely not going to say, oh, this is my new religion and no. wokeism is my god. So, um, but, but that's kind of the reality. It's just like I said with the state, wokeism, this idea of social justice and uh, fighting the, uh, the war against climate change and racial injustices and critical race theory and all of these different things are all different aspects. They're all different theologies of the church of woke. And I, I will say my caveat is that racism is bad and polluting the environment is bad. And most of these movements are rooted in something that I would actually agree with morally. But the way that they actually play out in real life and the way that these things have gone, I do not agree with in hardly any way. So with that being said, wokeism presents somebody with a set of morality, how they should live their lives, what their goals should be. Um, it provides this way for people to be a part of something bigger than themselves. It uh, provides for this push and this move towards uh, things being much more communal 
and uh, much more focused on society as a whole or the social body. Um, you'll hear this analogy, and I've made it before too, of 1984 versus Brave New World. We're shifting into Brave New World from 1984. Brave New World is all about the social body and the communal experience, and everybody belongs to everybody else. And you know, you hear it today with the whole COVID deal where um, people are very focused on getting the COVID shot and you should do it because it's for the good of everybody else. It's not just you, you're not doing it for selfish reasons, you're doing it for other people. And so that's just an example of how um, this shift from individualism, which would be what America was really founded on, more individualistic behavior and libertarianism. And nowadays it's getting more into this communal mindset, communitarianism. And um, with this new shift is this shift in secular religions from statism to wokeism. And those are the two things that, in my opinion, are both at play right now. Statism is in the decline. Wokeism is on the incline. And going back to that parallel of the Reformation, you had the same thing happen. The church was on the decline and started to break up and was involved with corruptions and issues. And at the same time as the church going down, you had the noble class and the beginnings of the nation states and the monarchs started to gain more and more power. Some of them just outright rejected the church or created their own church, all kinds of stuff. And so you saw this rise of the nobility and the downfall to an extent of the church. And the same thing is happening today where trust in government is at all time lows. But what about trust in corporations? Most people trust corporations more than government. And uh, what about trust in our institutions and in the social body as a whole? You know, can we come together as humanity? Is this with this global vision, the Great Reset? You know, all of these things that are going on today, like that's the push. And so, uh, yeah, George. So yeah, before we go on, I want to I want to go back a little bit to what you were saying about the sort of individualism as being the one of the defining impetuses of the. Uh, I guess the nation state period. Um, what are we calling the, the the one before the medieval period? The the nation church period, the nation state period, and the nation woke period. Um, <laughs> so that is something that individualism that does seem to be a very, super important part of our modern world. We talk about it all the time. But I was just thinking about it, and it seems to me that the uh, the period that came prior, the the nation church period, if we want to call it that, actually invested much more heavily in the individual than the nation state period ever did, because on the social side. With the feudal system, everything is built around personal relationships. You paid taxes because you had a personal relationship with your feudal superior who also owed you obligations. He had a personal relationship with his superior all the way up to the king, the emperor, the pope, and so on. Everything was built around these sort of hierarchies of personal relationships. And on the theological side, that since the church did sort of dictate a lot of what the social circumstances was, ultimately what's at stake is the individual human soul. In the nation state period, I don't think anyone really thinks of themselves as having a relationship on a personal level with the state, which is weird because we all think of ourselves as so individualist. I think we're, in America, at least, we're encouraged to think of ourselves as these rugged individuals. But the, our society, I think, actually neglects the individual to a great extent because it treats us like ants in this just <laughs> anthill of the state. We don't even get the benefit of having the sort of ultimate prize be our soul and eternal salvation since we live in essentially a godless state. And we don't have the sort of personal relationship with the power levels above and below us that you would enjoy in a feudal system. So I just wonder what your thoughts were on sort of, is the nation state period actually individualist? 
Um, so I would say that there are these cycles and patterns in history that I've talked about before. And one of those would be this aspect of a society being more individualistic and a society being more communal, communitarianism. And I would say that I agree with you. Christianity is a very individualistic religion compared to others, but it's also kind of weird because at the same time, it's very communal. You have this idea of the church, which is a community of believers. And so it really promotes both things. Um, but I would agree that in that time period, that was a fairly individualistic time period. And then once you get the creation of the nation state, then you start to see, oh, let's go prior to that to get the full cycle here. So prior to that would have been the time period of Rome and the, the age of empire, so to say. And under the empire, you, you connected yourself a lot of times as a lowly person to the empire. You were a Roman citizen. You were Roman and that meant a lot. You really uh, connected yourself to the state, so to say. And then as you shift into the Middle Ages, like you said, George, um, things got much more individualistic. And I would agree with that. Then you see a new cycle when you start to get the rise of the nation states where people get much more um, devoted to their country because your country is a thing now. You have this state that you belong to and our state is better than this state and better than that state. And we're gonna organize in this way. And you know, we are, you know, name into your nation state here. And that is something that people started shifting more towards. Then you have something like the enlightenment period, I would say, um, also the reformation. Um, you have these different times and these different movements that happen that do shift things into a different outlook on things. So when you look at the beginning of America, like you said, that is a more individualistic time period. And that is the, the period of the rugged individualist or seek out the Western frontier and find new lands. And you know it's all about the individual, the Bill of Rights when you get the constitution. And these things are much more individualistic. Then as you go forward past that, you go into more of our modern times and in my opinion, at least, where we are shifting towards. And that would be the shift away from the individualistic move into this shift that we have been in the process of for a while of shifting to something a little more communal. So it seems almost like there are meta cycles of the communitarianism, individualism within these larger cycles of the sort of rise and fall of the nation state. Yeah, yeah, that's at least that's the way I view it is that you have the rise and fall of empires and there are cycles in that you have empires that they uh, start off very small, maybe it's a city state or something like this, they start to expand, they start to grow their military and get more power, they expand even further, they start to institute more control over their people and get more loyalty out of their people. And as they get bigger, the bureaucracy also grows. And as the empire grows and the bureaucracy grows, and they start to extend themselves further and further, you generally get corruption that starts to enter into the system to a much greater degree. And you get inefficiencies and ineffectiveness with this gigantic, you know, Leviathan that's been created, and that then cycles into the fall of that empire. So you've got the rise and fall of empires, you've got this shift that you see um, on the social body, so to say, of having a more individualistic mindset to a more communal mindset. You've got uh, the difference between being a more mystical focused society or being a more materialistic focused society. And um, that is a shift that goes on. You can look at uh, 
what is it, uh, the sociologist Sorokin, he talked about a sensate age, then a mixed age, then a, a ideational age, so that uh, societies go through this pattern of being more sensate, focused on the senses and um, the pleasures that you would experience and material things and you know materialism, consumerism, these types of things. Then you get this shift into part that and part getting into some more spiritual aspects or mystical aspects, usually religious. And then that society typically goes to a more religious phase. And um, this happens at different times in different cycles. So they, they really overlap onto each other. And then you've even got like the theory of Strauss and Howe of the fourth turning. And they talk about how there is this cycle with generations as well. And part of it is because of the generations. They um, institute and overlay archetypes for each generation in a cycle. And each cycle has four turnings. And each cycle is roughly, I think, 80 years or something like that. And um, as you go through each cycle, it's something that you see over and over again. They mapped it all the way back to, I think, the War of the Roses and brought it all the way up to modern times with the only exception period being the Civil War. I think two of their turnings were meshed together in the time period of Civil War. But other than that, it overlaid perfectly throughout all of American history. And the idea is that as one generation is uh, basically dominating in society, let's say in the first turning, that would be a more idealistic time for that society, the growth of a nation, things are strong, institutions are strong, people have loyalty and they uh, devote themselves to their state or to their system. And then things start to uh, shift. You have the second turning where you have this awakening and um, this is a time period of like religious revivals and things like that. You had quite a few in the early time period of uh, American history as well. And then you get into this un unraveling period with things like culture wars and um, resistance movements, anti-war protests, all this kind of stuff. And then that shifts into the fourth turning. And that's the name of this book I'm referencing here is the fourth turning because they say we're currently in the fourth turning and that's the crisis period. And so that society goes through some major crisis. An example would be the time period of the Great Depression through the two world wars. And you know that's obviously a long period in time, but we're talking about generations. And so they've mapped this again throughout all of American history and beyond. And so you have this cycle. And part of the reason it exists is because one generation that is alive during this uh, period of say the culture wars, um, that generation is going to raise their kids differently than a generation that's around during the first turning when things are at their peak and things are looking good in society. So that's why, in their opinion, um, millennials were parented from this more helicopter parenting perspective, because when those parents were growing up, they were sometimes neglected and their parents didn't give them as much attention. Their parents were more focused on these other aspects of changes going on in society and they weren't dedicating as much time to their children. And so as those kids grew up and had their own kids, they are gonna be much more focused on their kids. They're gonna be overprotective. They're going to be um, focused on giving them all the things that they didn't have. The kids are gonna play a more dominant role and have more power, so to say, within the family unit. And then obviously those kids are going to parent their kids differently than their parents parented so, them. So what you're saying is that I can blame boomers for the fact that every girl <laughs> I dated had overbearing parents? Yeah, yes, you, you can. actually can. You can. I'm, I'm here for it, man. I, no, I, I'm, I <laughs> preach it. 
preacher. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's just super interesting because the more I dug into all of these things, I mean, I, I just, I don't know how many I just listed, half a dozen different like social cycle theories and historical patterns, but they actually all overlap onto each other. And the really interesting part to me is that not only do they overlap onto each other, if you look at where we are in each one of these cycles, they all really tell the same story, which is super interesting. Like if you look at the cycle of empires, we are at the tail end, the time period just prior to the crashing and fall of the empire. And if you look at the fourth turning cycle, we are in the fourth turning, the time period of crisis. And look at something like COVID, for example. Um, you look at this uh, shift between the sensate age to a ideational age or mystical age, and we are shifting into that ideational or mystical age as a society, and we see those shifts actually happening, like the example of statism to wokeism. And all of these patterns and cycles, they, they map onto our modern times, and since they overlay so accurately with each other, they don't even contradict each other, um, to me, that gives it a lot of merit and a lot of weight. And so I, I will not necessarily run my life strictly according to these theories, but I will give a lot of consideration to these theories when I think about how I am going to raise my kids, how I'm going to uh, lead my family, what decisions I'm going to make financially, all of these kinds of things. I'll definitely take this stuff into consideration because it has so much weight behind it. And so I would say not only is it interesting and you know important to understand history and that kind of stuff like you can actually see things that are coming from a very macro perspective not in detail but you can see trends and if you see the trends ahead of time a lot of times you can take advantage of that and be in a better position when trends start to shift if you know what they're shifting into well let me jump in because i i, I damn <laughs> stop drinking that coffee you got you got enough of it. i'm just kidding um shit uh i this okay so this whole church of woke thing okay so i think i just want to make this clear it isn't about like everybody being woke all of the time specifically in the realm that everyone thinks of when they say woke for example i had a conversation uh not that long ago and someone was you're talking about like, oh, what's next for the church here? And like, what's going to come after after this? And I was like, well, probably Gnosticism. And they were like, what? And I'm like, Gnosticism and magic, pretty much. <laughs> and they're like, how do you know? I'm like, it just happens in history. When people get frustrated with the establishment, they start looking in some really weird places to find information. And what they end up finding is that a lot of it makes a lot more sense than whatever the hell the state's feeding them that day. Uh, so... I just think that the whole like the whole modern t period we're living in right now is like you've got your categories. You've got your person who was like they were raised Christian, but now they're like they're spiritual and they're super into like Kabbalah or something like that. And they're like digging into like magic. And then you've got your like your your meme magicians, your like Wiccans or whatever, who are like, well, obviously, you know, I don't want to do any of that dark stuff, but I'll just do some, some little spells over here, you know, get some M&Ms in the dish or whatever. And then like you've got your other people who are like, well, if the church is lying, then I must... I must not be a, a the right kind of Protestant. Let me just dig into all the other different kinds of Protestantism. I mean, you've you've got if one doesn't work, you've got like 
5,998 left to try. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. Like people see the corruption in the system and the failures in the system. Yes. And they want meaning and purpose. Yes. Like my theory is that's where you get like a lot of extremist behavior. People like are leaving America and joining the Taliban. And you think that's crazy. (laughs) But when you really look at it, they have a structured life and a morality that they actually believe and live out. So if you're missing meaning in your life and join you're not the a part of anything, <laughs> yeah. you thank, join the Taliban. Thank you for saying that, because that's the kind of thing I would say, but now you get to go on the watch list instead of me. <laughs> I'm already on all the watch lists. It's okay. <laughs> there is no list. It's just the census they took last year. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, Man, I, once I, I wasn't the one to like bring up some <laughs> joining <laughs> some sort of extremist group. This is this is uncharted waters for we, our podcast. We well, are, I'll give the disclaimer. I do not recommend joining the Taliban or any other extremist group. I do not recommend it at all. Please don't do that. I already signed up. It's too late. <laughs> oh, dang it. Get no. the pickup truck, everybody. Um, as long as man, it's a Toyota Hilux. It has to be a Toyota Hilux. You got to mount the 50 cal on the The 50 top. cal. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. Just to pull this back in, I love the comparison, and this is perfect because we've got our we've got our resident Catholic over here with George, and our resident like I have no idea what I am over here with me, and then we don't know what you are exactly, but we're not gonna we're mystery. not gonna it's a mystery, so we're not gonna get too too Zoroastrianism. <laughs> He's a Gnostic after all. Was, uh, Zoroastrianism was my third choice. Oh, and your second choice was. Uh, Shia Islam. I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) Dang it. Taliban, here they come. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, anyway, so uh, (laughs) I I love that uh, I'm not the only one who picked up on this very, like, Protestant stratification of woke culture. Because I don't, I don't, like, people talk about that, and I think a lot of people get, like, really, like, oh, my God, you're talking about me because I'm, you know, on the left or something. No, woke culture exists on the left, the right, and the center, all the way up and down the spectrum, and it exists as a response to losing any kind of coherency within answers that the state or the church provide. And without them, people start investigating on their own. And what do we have today that's perfect for people who are investigating on their own? We have this. We have these phones and we have these computers in which we can dig all the way down into Shia Islam until we you know, decide that's what we want to do. Right. And we've get, got all these stratifications of people who are like, man, you still think the moon is real? And like people are like, you know, well, <clears throat> you know, people don't actually exist. You know, they're, they're actually just meat robots and they get their their downloads from on high. And they like the, the brain is actually like a radio receiver and we don't have memories they live in the clouds and like people go absolutely freaking crazy and if you read time like stories from times of apocalypticism that's exactly the kind of stuff you get again and again and again we covered it with the millerites we covered it with the um with sabotage zevi with all of these guys in history who like come along and they're like well look, a time of chaos. I'll just provide the answers. And everyone goes, tell us. And he's like, it's turtles all the way down. And everyone's like, great. So that's that's good. At least that's more coherent than what we're getting from the powers that be at this moment. You know? I don't know if that made you guys think of anything else, but I've got other questions I can get you. <laughs> no, it, it did. I don't remember what it was. Something about Protestantism and breaking into denominations. Hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. technology. So... Oh, yes. um, Yes. So the rise of the printing press and being able to disseminate information on a mass scale. Oh, no, George doesn't agree. 
No, no which is absolutely catastrophic. The rise of the printing press. Okay. Oh, yes. Well, yes. yes. But he does so agree. is the rise of the Internet. And yeah. that's what's Burn happening today. Yeah, it's just these these patterns, these cycles, these you know parallels. They they exist. They are there and they connect all of these things together. Yeah. And, you know, I I, I do think. I, OK, so I was writing I, I, I took a class in in a college called mass communications and it was pretty it was, cringe. It was amazing. Shut up. <laughs> uh, so the funny thing is, a few years later, I found myself actually writing the test questions for the same class. And I was going through a history of like the technolo technological disruptions throughout history and how technology basically shaped how people thought and lived. And the one thing that I'll never forget was I was writing a test question and I came across a piece of information. And I was like, was it possible for telegraph operators to fall in love with each other through just their telegraph messages? Turns out it was. Because there were many stories of a guy like sending a telegraph down the line and some woman being on the other end of that and being like, I like the cut of his jib. He's got the right beeping for me. And then she would send something back and he'd be like, shit, that's a female. And he could like pick up on that because he was so experienced with the technology that didn't happen before. And here's another thing that's interesting is like wherever there's anonymous commenting or commenting where people have monikers or anything like that, it's getting easier and easier to tell like who's behind whatever they say because we're getting stratified uh, and people worry about different things based on where they come from. Now, this absolute shotgunning of concepts, ideas, worldviews and outlooks, religions, everything that's coming out there, the woke culture is, if nothing to me, it, it's it's almost like you have to have a little sympathy because the the powers that be are so confused themselves and so old, for one thing. And like physically old, like most of the people running things these days are like a million years old. Let's not kid ourselves about that. And they seem to be almost behind the times with the technology and they can't keep up. And people are going, oh, my God, like the president's a million years old. The pope's a million years old. Like everybody in Congress is a dinosaur. Like and these people know nothing. And they've been describing the Internet as a series of tubes since the 90s. So we're talking like majorly out of touch. But I don't know. I'm going to stop ranting. Uh, anything I can, else? I can guys? rift on that. You want to so, riff on that? Yeah. So with the fourth turning cycle theory, whatever you want to call that, um, after the crisis period of the fourth turning, you switch back into the first period of the first turning where institutions are at an all time high. You have new institutions, new faith in these institutions. And so if we are in that fourth turning, this crisis period, uh, that would be when the boomers are basically running society. And this shift is going to be towards a new generation, the millennials running things in the first turning. And uh, <laughs> it'll be very interesting, very different. And so th that's what happens when you when you look at that four fourth turning cycle theory is that you have new institutions with new ways of handling things, shifting out of that old generation and all these old guys doing these things, these old ways. They're not working. They're corrupt. They're inefficient. We need new systems. We, we need new ways of doing things. We need new leadership, fresh faces, young people involved. And that's where we're headed. So it kind of makes a lot of sense when you say, you know, hey, look, everybody in charge is old and we don't like how they're doing things. Well, that's kind of the whole point of the fourth turning shifting into the first turning of new institution, new ways, new people, new generations. And I think that's where we're going. George, what's your opinion on boomers? <laughs> I mean, I'm not a 
I'm not a huge fan, to be perfectly honest. Um, then again, I'm not really a you know a huge fan of any generation. If we're going to be real about it, like yeah, I mean, yeah. let's let's face it, those people should have rebelled when the income tax wasn't repealed after World War One, and they didn't. People mm. should have rebelled when the Federal Reserve was created to destroy our currency through abusive monetary policy, and they didn't. People should have rebelled when we got ourselves involved in World War II by creating the embargo, the steel embargo against Japan, in order to precipitate a war that no one in America wanted, and we didn't. I like the so, way you think. I was going to say, you're not, <laughs> you're not voting your way out. Is that, uh, is that what I'm getting here? Because, you know, guys, I voted really hard this year. I mean, I don't know how many, how many times <laughs> after, after all you are from Illinois. <laughs> My vote's not going to count for anything in a pool like this. But nah. if you if you try really hard all the way until next election and you vote even harder and stronger and get yeah. all your friends to do it, too, you can make real change. I mean, as as much as I hate, you know, notorious war criminal winston churchill um <laughs> didn't he have that great quote about the best argument against democracy is a conversation with the average voter hmm. was that him uh, i don't know i saw a meme might have had some hits him. so even if it wasn't it it, it it was now because the memes create the reality oh of course of course yeah. now we're talking about meme magic and proof is in the pudding hey, i was i was there in 2016 man i oh, felt man. that well, everybody <laughs> felt that the universe cracked a little bit the when that whole thing really started to fold it on itself. That like, was the, I'm, uh, I'm surprised Antarctica didn't open out, open up, and show us the entrance to Agartha in 2016. Yeah, <laughs> well, some people do say that Antarctica is where the lizard people come from through a All crack right. in the earth, and they're the ones that are ruling everything. And so, you know, maybe that was a time period where they came out. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, uh, well, so something here, okay. was released. Let's let's get serious. I have an okay, extra okay. serious yes, thing yes, to talk yes. about now All about right. the 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 age of the woke, what whatever we're calling it. Um, sure. So I like sociology. I hate everyone who does sociology, but I like sociology. <laughs> um, last good sociologist was Emil Durkheim, often considered the father of sociology. Uh, hasn't gone well since then. But one of the sort of important distinctions that's often drawn in sociology is the distinction between a guilt-based culture and a shame-based culture. That is, are you upset when you do something wrong because you did something wrong or because you were discovered doing something wrong? And the usual model they lay out is that ancient Rome and Greece is a shame-based culture where you're upset because when you do something wrong, it is an embarrassment to you socially. And then Christianity comes in the Middle Ages are a guilt-based culture <laughs> when you're upset because you have sinned and then you get a more theological concept of sin. That's a drastic oversimplification. I don't even really agree with that much. But it occurred to me that the whole, one of the most abusive parts of the sort of post-nation state woke culture imperium is that it is both a guilt and a shame-based culture where if you slip up, A, everyone hates you and you feel bad about yourself, but B, you're also almost forced by decades in an abusive educational system to internalize and feel guilty for the rest of your life. And there is no redeemer in this sort of double guilt and shame-based system that is the sort of woke orthodoxy. Yeah, and that makes sense if we are in this interim period in between a material age and a mystical age, you have components of both of them that are coming into play. And 
that would make sense to have a big movement that's based on morality and how you view the world and view yourself that has components of both aspects. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think, <laughs> I don't know. I recuse myself from this question. <laughs> I'm, afra I'm afraid I, I don't have too much to say about, uh, about uh, the new emerging church because I don't really understand it except for one thing that seems to keep coming up and it is that question of is there a redemptive line in the new morality and it doesn't appear that there is once you screw up it's over um, no i i i well off so? the top of my head at least let's let's see if this will go anywhere but off the top of my head what i would think is that the redemption or the aspect of eternal life or you know what is our goal and when will we reach perfection that's when you have the social body unified together and once you have the unification of the social body, everyone is equal, everyone is the same, everyone has everything that they need. Um, you live in this post-scarcity world, and we have taken care of the environment. You have the sustainable development initiatives and Agenda 2030 and the Great Reset, and all of these things are oriented towards creating this society where we mesh the digital and the physical where we are taking care of the environment, where we are all on the same page from an ideational perspective and a morality perspective. And that is the redemption of humankind is when we reach that point of having a unified social body. Uh, from that perspective, I don't agree with it, but, but I think that's what they would look towards as being the future redemption. And if I do my part and I help shift us into that, then maybe I will get some sort of redemption in my life? Yeah, it's like an well, exoteric redemption. What were you saying? That, yeah, that's that's the thing is that redemption is by, you know, definition, a uh, personal thing. You know, it comes from the Latin to buy back. It's when you pay for a captive to be returned. That's what redemption is. And it seems like redemption, when it is almost purely uh, communal or social, isn't really redemption anymore because, yeah, ultimately you may reach the sort of, you know, post-scarcity utopia or whatever, and sort of the group will be redeemed, but it's not really redemption if the actual individual can't be redeemed as an individual, since that's what redemption is. And I would still argue that there isn't really redemption in the system because, yeah, like I'm not the type to sort of go all all boomer about a uh, cancel culture and whatnot, just because it's counter, it's not really productive. Exactly. But the fact of the matter is you can lose your livelihood and, and social standing because of something you drunkenly wrote on Twitter 10 years ago. And that, <laughs> that strikes me as a very non redemption based society when you don't even, you, you don't even need to be actively doing something wrong. Now, somebody just needs to show that you once did something offensive. Yeah, and I, I would like to draw two things that you've said tonight together. You mentioned meme magic and how we are changing the definition of things. And then you mentioned how this new aspect of redemption is more communal and therefore it's not redemption. Well, if we are changing the definition of things and we are changing the way people view the world, then at first it's just an incorrect definition and it doesn't work. But if you get everybody to believe it and get on board with it, then there is a new reality that starts from this magic that was occurring. So uh, think of something like, like gender. You know, that's something that a few decades ago, real basic, it's biological. You know, you either have these parts or you have those parts and that determines whether you're a man or a woman, just period. That's all there is to it. And then people started saying, well, 
you know, technically, yeah, that's the case, but, you know, I'm going to say that I'm a woman, even though I'm a man and I'm just going to do it. And, you know, people better respect me for it. You know, at first it was hidden and then it's more um, out in the open nowadays, but that was a shift that had this interim period where, no, you're not a woman, you're a man, but you're pretending to be a woman and we'll go along with it for now, or we'll let you do your thing, make your own choices, that kind of thing. And that's the general way society looked at things. And that shifts into modern day, where pretty much everybody in modern society is on board with this aspect of choosing your own gender. So I am supposed to say Caitlyn Jenner. I'm not supposed to say Bruce Jenner, which ties into what was said earlier about wokeism not just being on the left. Uh, Bruce or Caitlyn Jenner, whoever that is, is running as a Republican in, I think, California, wherever they are. I don't even know what pronouns to use here. It gets a little confusing to me. But uh, we see this shift occurring, and it has occurred where the definition of what is gender and what is sex has changed over time through this, I don't know, mechanism of magic with this influence of technology. And uh, we see the technology within science of actually being able to change biological components of human beings that's occurring at the same time as this change of definitions and how people view things from an intellectual point of view. And it's changed the way things are. And so, you know, maybe redemption is kind of a similar thing here where it was more individualistic and now it is going more communal. And we are in this interim period where it's a little mixed right now. But if everybody gets on board with this, then maybe it will not be redemption as we had defined it prior, but it will fill that same role. People will have that void filled within themselves. People want redemption. People want to be, you know, bought back when they do something bad or when they're enslaved by sin or, you know, however you want to word that. But uh, redemption is something that people do seek. And if people can find it through this, uh, I don't know, connection to the social body, then they are receiving redemption by one definition that is different than the old definition. And so it's kind of weird. That reminds me actually of uh, the core, one of the core concepts, as far as I remember, of Sabbathian Frankism was that adherents to that religion would find redemption through sin, which is to say that they had to experience all of the depravity before they could even understand what redemption was. And that's sort of like this, it's sort of treated, as far as I can tell, as some sort of a cycle. People just have to go through a time where nothing makes any sense and everything's bad and all goes to hell. Like they have to go to the prodigals, they have to be the prodigal son, go to the city, spend all the money, eat with the pigs before they understand what they had before. That's the only way for a person to fully understand the value of their redemption. And I believe that's Frankism, but I couldn't say for sure. But I've heard such things before. Um, that societies have to learn lessons throughout history, throughout their throughout their total, you know, narrative and total existence. They have to go through these stages of like, well, we learned that war wasn't our thing, so we had to get away from it. We learned that we were tricked into fighting huge wars for no good reason. Um, and we did it again and again and again. And we got so used to it that eventually at some point we had a breakthrough, a reformation where it was like, war is not acceptable anymore. Everybody just takes it for granted. Like, it's interesting. Everybody just takes it for granted these days that we always knew that Iraq was about poppies and oil. We didn't know that. Back in the day, I didn't know that. I was six and I had all of Fox News's talking points ready to present in my my freaking class about uh, why we were owning libtards. Huh? Yeah, yeah. At a young age, <laughs> it was owning the owning the libs. 
No, but that that's the thing. It's like I went to class like ready because I, I heard that, oh, yes, we have to defend our freedom. These people hate our freedom. And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. This is how things go. And, of course, that is a very... I don't want to pick out just boomers. That is a very outmoded way of thinking that we all get our talking points from the television screen in the living room. Now we can dig deeper. We can interact with that television screen in our pocket, on our desk, anywhere we go. And there's a screen. And yet somehow the social discourse has gotten even more retarded. Right. <laughs> you really think it would have gotten better, but it didn't. Well, could could it be that we're going through a phase where we have to figure out how to do it right? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> you don't look so hopeful. <laughs> Man, I just want to live in a cabin in the woods. Well, then you might need to talk to Joshua. He's got some ideas. About oh, to talk that. to Uncle Ted. <laughs> have you read, yeah, have you read Ted Kaczynski? Oh, I mean, he is, I, aside from his actions and the way he applied his theories, he is I mean, he's, dead on. He's he's the greatest American philosopher of the latter half of the 20th century. I you know what's argue. funny? It's like two years ago, I don't think I would have ever even said that. But <laughs> nowadays, he's such a meme. Everyone's like, he was right. I'm like, did you read the book? Go read the book. You're in the book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you guys want to talk about Ted Kaczynski? Yeah, I mean, we're all over the place now, so let's just go for it. <laughs> well, I, I, I would like to talk about technology that I think yeah. applies here. Uh, so you mentioned like the internet and the rise of the internet, and this should have been kind of a great awakening where we're discovering new things and new depths, but instead it hasn't really panned out that way. Well, the internet was created and uh, let's say as the internet first became popular, the uh, overall ideology of it and the way people viewed it was that it was a decentralized sharing of information where you can connect personally with individuals all around the world. And that's kind of why people thought that this was going to be a big thing that changed the way people interacted with information. But if you look at the way it's ended up, you have this technology that is not decentralized. It's controlled almost completely by big tech. And it is not connecting individuals with individuals all around the world. It's usually connecting individuals with platforms that show an avatar of a picturesque view of an individual's life. And, you know, it's, it's filtered through all these things and then filtered again through big tech, whether they censor it or I've heard some people say that Google is, um, what is it, a, a censorship algorithm. It's not a finding algorithm. It's a hiding algorithm because what you search for will produce results, but those results depend on what Google wants you to see or Facebook or, you know. Yeah, I actually, I actually just saw a new uh, little Google message today that I'd never seen before on a search. Uh, if you, some things, when you search them, you get a message that pops up and I took a picture of it. It looks like these results are changing quickly. If this topic is new, it can sometimes take time for results to be added by reliable sources. Oh, it's God. literally they're literally coming out and saying it give us a minute to craft the narrative like just <laughs> eat eat your big mac you know take your prescription just give us a minute to craft the narrative for you little man well yeah. not only are they saying that people are begging them to do so oh, they're like please big it. tech i can't handle all this hate speech please censor everything i see and filter it through wokeism or and you know whatever these people is. would not have survived in the old online gaming lobbies 
that's why none of those people are running for president because you know they said some stuff yeah <laughs> sir we've uh, we found your discord <laughs> <laughs> i withdraw my nomination <laughs> <laughs> quick burn the memes <laughs> yeah um no tell us more about about what you think of the of technology and how it's affecting us right now well i would say that uh, let's go back to the reformation parallel and the rise of the noble class my personal connection to modern times would be that the church is a pattern of the modern state and the historical noble class is a pattern of the modern corporate world and so you have these institutions that were under the overarching institution. So you had the same thing in the historical time period where you had the church was at the top and you had under them the nobility, which was you know, separated into all these little groups and little fiefdoms. And you know, they did have a lot of power over their one little niche, but they basically were limited to that and they were limited to what the church told them was how they should operate. And in modern times, you have all these corporations that are separated into all these different fiefdoms and their different markets. And they have a lot of power, the mega corporations at least, over their niches and the markets that they dominate, but they're still filtered by what the state tells them they can and can't do and should and shouldn't do. And so you start to have this marriage, just like you did previously, of uh, the nobility actually, for example, Medici's becoming popes and things like this, where you go from a political position into a position in the church. So the noble class starts becoming ingrained in the church and vice versa. You get this marriage of the two for a while before the period of the Reformation. And the same thing's been happening. You, the revolving door of people that are going from you know, the board of directors of the mega corporations into the state department and then back into the mega corporations and back and forth and back and forth. And you have this marriage of the two that's going on today. And my theory, at least, would be that if the pattern holds, the corporate world is going to gain a lot more dominance through the technological changes that have occurred and are being mastered now. And the state will diminish in its influence over society as a whole. George, were you going to say something? It looked like you had... I was going to say just with that, uh, that parallel you drew, of course, um, what is the common, uh, well, it's probably not common anymore because nobody has a freaking education anymore. <laughs> but what was the common parlance for the sort of class of extremely rich business magnets of the 19th century uh, who sort of ran the entire u.s economy what did the, what did people call them the robber barons ah yes yes yeah and just as an aside it's interesting to note that they they engaged in far far more public benefaction than our current class of technocrats and they were called robber barons so what does that make you jeff bezos <laughs> We're getting a little kidding. We are getting a little edgier than we usually do on this show, <laughs> and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, no, it's interesting that you say that uh, about these parallels between essentially like medieval, not medieval society, but like, eh, yeah, medieval society kind and the modern day. It's, it's, you've got these corporations, these little fiefdoms that are all connected to kingdoms or something like that. And it's like, it's like a chain operation, you know? It's like there's a, I don't know, but there, the difference is like back then it appeared that there was like one figurehead who was kind of like there, you know, there was somewhere you could look and be like, yeah, that's definitely got control over everything. And it was like, oh, it's the Vatican. It's the Pope. It's the church. And you would say oh, that's 
you know, they send things down from on high and everyone, you know, follows it or whatever. Nowadays, it's like, who, who's the bad guy? You know, there's no like figurehead. Now, oh, yeah, it's, be are... it's because it's fashionable to act like we don't have class distinctions and class hierarchies in the US. Like politicians, you know, like to act like they're blue collar. It's like, Ugh. here's a carefully staged picture of me wearing a hard hat. I am just <laughs> like you, fellow wage earners. And it's, it's, of course, it's stupid. Anyone who does that has probably never worked a goddamn day in their lives. Um, and we do have, I, I'm very firmly convinced that we have extremely real and generational class differences in the U.S. Like, I am a working man. I, I am very blue collar. Aaron can attest. I'm yes. a redneck. However, I have a decent amount of education, got a couple master's degrees. They're kind of bullshit, but they're there. And that's allowed me a, a certain amount of access to, so, to social circles in which I found myself incredibly uncomfortable because they were social circles of a class to which I do not belong. They were social circles of a sort of political and financial elite that we pretend doesn't exist. And it was sort of shocking for me to be confronted with it, just how real it was. The way they lived their lives was different than us. The way they conceptualized society and even reality was just different from the working class. Hmm. And I just wondered, did you have any thoughts about class or lack thereof, if you want to argue that in America? Huh. Uh, well, I guess I could tie in. Um, it was mentioned earlier that I was working on a framework for the natural order of things. Oh, and, exactly. <laughs> uh, within that framework, uh, so basically I have categories and then I have principles under each category. And I guess just to give you an idea, I have the notes here for it, at least on the light side. So the natural order has a light side and a dark side. And um, I actually just recorded the episode on my podcast for the light side. So it's fresh in my mind. And so some of these things uh, clicked with me. But on the light side, you have three principles, or I guess three categories of the natural order. That would be number one, existence. So things exist, you know, pretty obvious. Number two would be time, that we experience things through this filter of time, that that is the way things are structured. And number three would be order, that there is an order and structure to all things. And so the natural order is in these categories. Within existence, you have life, love, and sacrifice. And I won't get into exactly what all those are, but um, the second category is time. And the principles there are cycles, progression, and causality. And with cycles, I actually did use an example that was mentioned earlier here of the cycles of emotions within human beings and how people go from being, for example, happy to being sad. There are times in my life where I'm happy and feeling good. There are times in my life where I do not feel good at all. But the reason I can appreciate happiness and joy is because I have experienced the opposite of sadness or loneliness or something negative. And so we have these cycles within us and these cycles go from, you know, ecosystems to, you know, the personal thoughts of each individual human being. It's, you know, it's a basic principle of the natural order. So it applies to basically all things. And so this is one thing that does happen. We have these cycles that exist within us and emotions, and you do have to experience the opposite in order to uh, appreciate the other side of things. And so there is something to that. And um, in the final category of the natural order of things, it is order. And within order, the principles are hierarchy, differentiation, and meaning. 
And so hierarchy is one of these basic principles of the natural order of things, in my opinion. And I would say that it exists in all levels, whether it be nature or whether it be human nature. And we're talking about societies here. So in my opinion, at least, I think it is just natural that societies organize themselves through hierarchy. And the caveat that I give is that doesn't, that doesn't correlate to the value of human life. So it's not that someone at the top of the hierarchy has more value as a human being than a person at the bottom. This is part of differentiation. People have different skills, different abilities. People are not equal in these ways. Maybe we have equal value because we are all human beings, but we do not have equal abilities, equal skills, equal aptitudes. And so because of this, um, we don't have equal wealth or power or influence. And in what I am saying here is that hierarchy is a basic principle of all things. So when you have a society, there will be hierarchy. You'll have children, you'll have their parents, you'll have elders above them. You'll have a working class or a servant class or a slave class. You'll have the manager class. You'll have maybe a financial class. You'll have a ruling class. You have these different hierarchies. And it's not necessarily bad, even though in human society, it usually plays out to be a bad thing. But I would say that it is just natural. George? Oh, you're muted. You're, you're muted. Uh, you didn't want to hear him after all. <laughs> sorry, sorry. So would you say that, I, li I like what you said. I, I'm actually, I'm tracking 100% with what you said about it being natural and really unavoidable. It's always going to happen. And it seems to me that one of the reasons why it does turn out badly in the case of our modern society in particular, is because we have this insistence that America is a classless society. Because when you have a recognized sort of class structure and people own up to their spot in it, that comes with sort of duties and obligations. Like in a traditional society, those who were in a higher class had obligations towards those who were below them. Like if you were a noble, that meant you had to be on the front lines and possibly go get killed if you know you had a war with your neighboring duchy or whatever and when we pretend that we don't have class distinctions i feel like it allows the people who do have more wealth influence prestige whatever to essentially get away with not giving anything back to the rest of society because they get to participate in this big lie that oh well i'm just a working joe with my hard hat on for this photo op zuckerberg's of, in a hoodie he's just like you <laughs> instead of i'm a person to whom much has been given and from whom much will be expected hmm. yeah and so one aspect of that would be that the ruling elite in modern society are largely behind the scenes. It's, it's not the president that makes all the decisions on how the country goes or how the economy goes. No, that's not the person. That, hey, I'm sorry. No, no, that's not the person that's really in charge. I voted so hard. I know. I know. And the 1% <laughs> of, you know, people in government that are voted for, you know, they're not the ones that are really running things. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hate to break your heart, Ugh. but on top of that, in my, my estimation, and this would be in the realm of theory, definitely, would be that I would say that people in the elite class at the top of the hierarchy are not dumb. I think that they are probably very smart, that you have a lot of people with a lot of wealth, a lot of influence that have a lot of control over how society goes, probably some sort of oligarchy of some kind, and that these people 
probably know more than I know and more than you guys know. And so this idea of uh, all of history going in cycles and there being patterns and us shifting into a new age and you know probably near the fall of the American empire and the economic cycles do occur. You have rises and falls in economic systems. I, I think they probably know that and that's probably not a secret to them. And so what I theorize and my guess would be that they're not just going to sit back and say, oh, we're going to try to stop this from happening, even though it's happened, you know, throughout all of human history, you know, we can stop it now because we are just that great. You know, there might be some that believe that, but I would say that most of the people with that behind the scenes power and influence were, are probably more under the idea that, hey, this is inevitable. These things happen within societies, cultures, civilizations. We need to take advantage of this so that in the end, we are the ones that still have power, influence, and wealth. And not only still have it, we have even more than we did before. So I just if you got, sorry, I just got this picture of the elites being like a surf pro. And they're like skating along these tidal, like these huge waves. And then there's us normal people like standing in the shallows with water wings on as the wave is coming in. <laughs> and we're like, just like, do they surf those? on purpose and then we get squished it's great <laughs> yes yes so like i referenced the uh the fall of the roman empire earlier and how it was the monks and monasteries that largely ended up being the centers of trade afterwards and uh, kept a lot of the knowledge that would have been lost otherwise or more than likely would have been and uh they were the ones that filled that gap when the roman empire fell there was no state, so to say, and the Roman Empire had a lot of control, a lot of structures, a highly structured and hierarchical uh, organization within society. And when that went away, someone had to fill those shoes. And that is where I would say that was the rise of the church and being the dominant institution. So we talk about the cycles. You had the empire was the dominant institution that shifted to the church and then that shifted to the nation state. And that's going to shift to the technocracy in my opinion. But you know, uh, it's, yeah, it's funny with the, the Roman example, how the longer things went on and in many ways you get maps on well with the less stable and less successful the operation of the Roman state was, but the more bureaucratic it got, like at the height of the Roman Empire's power, the number of actual state employees was probably about 200. When Rome ruled from Britain past Syria, it was probably about 200 people were actually state employees. Later Roman Empire, you got much more state bureaucracy, agencies and offices and administrations my favorite name is um we don't really know what they did i like to think they were like the roman cia because <laughs> no one knows what they really did but there was a there was some state agency in the fifth century i think called the agentes in rebus which means the doers for things <laughs> and no and we're really not sure what they did other than that there was some sort of like service that did stuff and they were at the emperor's command and they traveled around a lot and we don't really know what they did i like to think of them as the ancient cia but it's it's sort of it maps on i think well to how a lot of a lot of times bureaucratic bloat is a pretty good marker that sort of you're on a downward turn of one of these cycles yeah, it's a good thing we don't have bureaucratic bloat nowadays yeah, thank, thank god. god for that yeah. <laughs> but going back to the idea of the elites planning things um <laughs> 
I would say that, you know, looking at that Roman example of they fell, the church rose up as an institution. Well, if you were one of the elites and you knew that something like this was going to happen, that Rome was going to fall, you know, sometime in the next decade or so, and you knew that there was going to be a big power shift within the major institutions within that society, then what if you just took advantage of that? started getting your family members and your cronies involved in the church, growing this institution at a ground level, making sure that if the Roman Empire falls, this will be the backup for society. It'll just be natural. People will flock to it because it is there. They are seeking meeting because they're running away from this disorder, this chaos, this corruption. And so I guess in my opinion, it just would make sense to me that these things are being created. You talk about crafting the narrative, that this narrative is being crafted, that it's this idea of trust the experts. And that's, um, oh, I forget who it was now. Oh, William Henry Smith. Uh, he wrote back in the 1920s, he wrote the book Technocracy. As far as I can tell, it is the first time the word technocracy is ever used. I have never heard him or that book referenced by anyone else in my life. I randomly came across it because it was free online, and it's actually extremely good. He gets into philosophy, he talks about uh, technocracy, but one of the things he talks about is that um, politicians are not the ones who should be running things. Um, they are driven by the will to master, the will to control. We all have these different drives. We have a will to create. We have a will to survive. We have a will to control. We have a will to take or to hoard or to acquire. And um, you have these different aspects that are around for whole societies and that exist within us as individuals. And so what he said is that all of these are kind of animalistic. And the one that really deserves to be in charge of a society would be someone driven by the will to know. And so they're not looking out for themselves. They're not trying to take things from others. They're not trying to create new things to control people. They're not just trying to control and master people. They're not just looking out for their own survival and their own selfishness. They just wanna know things. They wanna understand things. They wanna gather the data and interpret it and use that for governing society in a much more benevolent way. So it's the experts, it's the engineers, it's the scientists that are the ones that should be really running society, not the politicians. And in my opinion, that's where we're going. That's where we're headed. These are the people, these are the institutions that are beginning to run things. It's the experts at the top. It's, you know, when you look at COVID, when COVID hit, who do people turn to? They turn to the Gates Foundation. They turn to uh, the Rockefeller Foundation. They turn to big tech. They turn to uh, the big pharmaceutical companies. They turn to all of these different things. Yes, they turn to the state, but you know, not as much as they might have a few decades ago. And so, you know, this is the rise of the technocracy of uh, shifting where society is focused on experts running things. Again, most people don't trust their governments. Most people would admit that politicians are corrupt and shouldn't be running things. But most people also vote really hard so they can change things through <laughs> politicians. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but, you know, that lack of education maybe. But the the whole point here is that, you know, that's probably what we're shifting into is something like that. I highly doubt people with wealth, power, and influence behind the scenes at the top of this invisible hierarchy are just, uh, you know, uh, absent-minded towards these things that are happening. You know, there's probably some intentionality. There's probably some conspiracy and corruption behind the scenes that we don't know about as of yet. But I, I think that's something to 
watch out for and be aware of ourselves so that we don't really fall for this because you know as you see the the woke culture kind of infusing itself in all of society today you know we don't want to fall victim to a crafted narrative for somebody else's benefit and so at least by knowing that there are crafted narratives and where that is going and what the trend is and why it is being crafted in a certain way, it gives us an added layer of protection and gives us some strategies for going forward, at least my opinion. Hmm. Well, I, I find it sh you know shocking how unaware I was myself just a couple of years ago. You know, I went to, I went to college, you know, I experienced some, some of this like, you know what everybody gets when they go to college they run into some people who are like hyper political i never cared i was like this feels like nonsense this feels like people bitching about stuff that doesn't actually matter and wanting to change the things that cannot change um that will not change i just never got involved in it but when i started tying communications technology to the technocracy finance to the technocracy uh, public mind to the technocracy. And I started to learn more about how like psychological operations worked, what movies do to people, um, how advertising works on people and, and structuring the society. But the thing is like, you can find all of this kind of stuff on Wikipedia, but you tell people that, Hey, like, you know, of course, George, you remember showing me that AI that generated a peer reviewed paper. How many years ago? <laughs> yes. How long ago was that? Was, oh, let's see. One, two, three. About eight. Yeah, eight years ago, you had an AI that could generate a, a flawless, um, peer-reviewed looking paper. Um, did it win awards or anything, or did it not go that far? Um, it uh, it got a number of them published, which is just such an indictment of the scientific uh, <laughs> scientific publication industry. Yeah. Well, we also had a random side note here. I just heard this the other day, um, a presentation from 2014 or 15, I can't remember, where they were talking about smart dust and how you have these little computers that are the size, like smaller than a grain of salt that can actually process information and do things. And, you know, this is almost 10 years ago. So, yeah, there, you know, there's a lot of stuff. That, you know, the you know, electromagnetic pulse really can't come soon enough. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, to your point, um, not about the EMP, I'm afraid, but to your point about the uh, this this technology existing or being at least in the public mind, not the public mind, but at least out there 10 years ago, you tell people that stuff exists and they still think you're just crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, I, I tell people, yeah, your phone's listening to you right now. Say donut 20 times and see how many ads you get with donuts in them. <laughs> Sit there, say donut 20 times in a row. No, so I, all... was, I was on Discord the other day group of people and one guy mentioned he'd just gotten a new pair of vans the next day one of the guys on our call who's literally a logger in the mountains of oregon who no idea what vans were has never seen them in his life started getting ads for vans on all his computer stuff yeah and and that's the thing is like even in my situation all our phones were locked nobody was on facebook but it was still gathering data but you tell people this stuff and it's like, you know, we're already in the matrix, everybody. They're like, that's crazy. And it's like, I can show you this stuff. And then you show it to them. That's not real. Eh. <laughs> well, uh, so I got two examples of that. 
number one, yes. Number one, I was uh, listening to a podcast uh, yesterday, I guess it was, or day before, and uh, heard a presentation that was being given about encoding information in DNA. And so this is technology that does exist currently where they can, uh, I think they... I think they encoded a GIF, if I remember right, into the DNA of a bacteria. And so the idea and the way that this was described by this lady was that, um, let's say you want to get information from one place to another, but you're afraid of it being intercepted or something, maybe you're a spy or whatever. I don't know what she's insinuating there. But the idea is that you don't encode it into your own DNA. You encode it into the DNA of a bacteria that's somewhere on your skin. And so as you, even if you get your DNA checked down to a level, a molecular level, they won't find it. But then you can get a skin scraping, you can get that bacteria that's probably multiplying as well, and then you can decode that and get the information back out. So it's not just- So the bacteria metastasizes and then you just become the meme you'd engraved (laughs) in it. (laughs) Elon Musk, I mean. (laughs) You become the meme. One day I'm just going to wake up and I'm going to be the funny yellow dog. (laughs) (laughs) So what was your second example there? Um... Oh, what was it? Okay, yes. Today, someone uh, sent me a video of this uh, presentation about tokenizing individuals. So I talked about blockchain technology, and um, there was this pill that uh, this lady was talking about. It was on some talk show. I didn't recognize the host, but um, she was someone from Google, and it was back when Larry Page was running Google. So it was you know a little while ago. But um, she was talking about this pill that you can take. And your body then becomes an authentic authentication token so that if you take this pill, then you could, you know, for example, if there's a, a building with security and you can't get through the door unless you have some authentic authentication, then if you take this pill, then you are authenticated and you can go through the door because your whole body is an authentication token. And it is really, really crazy stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that people would say, no, oh, that's crazy conspiracy. That yep. would never happen. Yep. But like that was real as of, you know, years ago. And so like that's actually history. <laughs> yeah. That's not some, you know, futuristic sci-fi dystopia. Like that existed years ago. So imagine where we are today. You will live to see man-made horrors beyond human comprehension. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the universe is indeed comic, but the joke is on mankind. <laughs> yes. Well, look, look, we've been talking for a while. I, I want to wrap this up on, uh, and I, I don't know if there was anything we didn't cover that you felt like you wanted to get in here while we're, while we're on this. I don't think so. No. I, well, I guess one thing that I would say just on that note is that with all of these historical patterns and cycles, technology does play a big role. And so we saw that with the Reformation, the printing press. We saw that in modern times with the internet. And as we are shifting into this new age, an age of science, um, the magic of this age, because we are entering a mystical age, a magical age, you know, that magic isn't just technology. It's not just computer chips. And that's, that's the interesting thing about this is that the magic is also biological. So we're doing things like, you know, gene therapy on a mass scale. We are doing things like uh, changing the DNA of organisms. We are talking about these ideologies like transhumanism, where, you know, we are going to create mankind in the image of whatever mankind wants. 
And so it goes along again with all of these other things. It's not man in the image of God, that would be theology, that would be religious. It's man in the, in the image of man replacing that theology, and that is also religious. And um, all these shifts, but all of them do have this component of technology progressing and helping to push these movements. I mean, you had Reformation movements that were going on way before Martin Luther. And there were, you know, some really cool examples prior to him, but, you know, it didn't really take off until you had the printing press. And the same could be said of basically every single time, you know, major events happened in these cyclical patterns. And I would say that's something to watch out for in modern times, that the, the magic, the manipulation of the mastery of not only the digital technology, but also the biological technology and that is what is going to propel us into whatever the next age is. George, did you have any words you'd like to share before we wrap up here? No, no. I think that did I get an A for participation this week, Professor? You did a good job. You did a great <laughs> At job. At least a C plus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know how Aaron grades. Yeah, I give him A's for everything, you know. <laughs> I was a nice teacher. Um, yeah, no. Um, well, I love that we got to talk about so much stuff. Um, and I love that at the end, at the end, we finally got to connect everything uh, to everything that we've talked about throughout. And it's been it's been a fascinating conversation to have. And like my mind was just like racing along the whole time. But that's how it is when I listen to your show, our foundations podcast, everybody, you should go listen to that, learn about the, the new church. I promise it's not like a political thing. It's just the era we're entering. There's all this interesting stuff that's going on. Um, and with that, would you like to plug your stuff? Tell us where people can find you, what they should look for. If you're working on anything else that you want them to know about anything at all. Yeah, sure. So the podcast is Our Foundations Podcast. You can find it on any podcast player or ourfoundations.podbean.com. And I also have a Twitter account that would be at FoundationsPC. So if you're a Twitter kind of a person, which I am usually not, but I have one for the podcast at least. And uh, and yeah, if you're interested in these things that we talked about, like these are the things that my podcast has covered, uh, probably broken down into smaller pieces and more depth. But uh, the current thing that I am covering now, the, the episode that I just actually recorded today, it'll probably release sometime around the same time this episode releases here, will be the one on the natural order. So if that piqued your interest, you know, you can listen to the recent ones. If these historical patterns and cycles pique your interest, uh, go to the Ven Armani interview. That's episode 111. And that, that's really interesting for anybody. But uh, if you really want the full picture, go to episode one, because my podcast does build on itself. And so start at the beginning is my recommendation. Yeah, I, I recommend it as well. It's, it's one of the more uh, in-depth history, philosophy, technology things I, I've ever heard. It, it was... Uh, I heard I heard Joshua on another show, and I was like, I hope this guy has his own podcast. And I went and looked, and so he did. Um, so anyway, thank you for joining us, Joshua, and we talk about dead people. We hope that everyone who's been listening has enjoyed themselves thoroughly and hasn't gotten too triggered. But that's okay because we aim to trigger these days. It's it's time. You've gotta we've gotta grow up, everybody. Um, and with that, I would like to close out and let maybe the technocracy play everybody out. Da 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 da